Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK. Today, we have collected the origin stories of some past guests, so you can hear the different ways people got their start in the industry, including our own host and JCK News Director, Rob Bates. Hey everyone, this is Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com. Welcome to the Jewelry District. Unfortunately, my co-host, Victoria Gamelski, the Editor-in-Chief of JCK, is having a family emergency and uh, we wish her the best and she wasn't able to show up for this taping. So this is usually where her and I discuss recent issues and there's obviously tons to discuss. So it's unfortunate we can't do it, but we decided to do something a little different and a little special and maybe something that's a little lighter in in some of these difficult times. Usually, as I'm sure regular listeners to the podcast know, when we have a guest, we will start off by asking how they got into the business. And I actually find this a lot of fun because, you know, you get a variety of answers and and some are more business-like than others, but you usually get uh, insight into the person and into their background and into where they came from that perhaps you wouldn't necessarily get otherwise just knowing them as an industry figure or a public figure. You just learn a lot about the person. And I think in just about every case, I've learned something new about the person we're interviewing and where they came from. And, you know, a lot of times that kind of informs how they um, act in their business life. So usually before we get to business and we talk business, and obviously it's a business podcast, we are really interested in people's jewelry stories because as uh, many of you are aware, you know, not everybody decides to go into jewelry. Kind of a lot of people just kind of fall into it. And it's kind of an accidental thing for a lot of people. It certainly was for me. And even some of the people that we've spoken to who were from jewelry family, Sometimes it's just kind of how their career path went. So we find a lot of these stories fascinating. We've uh, compiled some of the best ones from some of our more interesting, more prominent guests that we've had. Um, We decided to kind of go uh, some of the people way back. But, you know, some of the recent stories we've heard are are great, too. So we hope you enjoy it. You know, JCK, we do a feature every week called How We Got Here that our contributor Karen Dibus does. And she does a great job with it. And it's usually people telling the story of their business and how they got into this industry. So think of this episode as kind of an extended version of a lot of people talking about how they got to where they were. I find these stories fascinating and I hope you enjoy them too. want to introduce and welcome Alexander Lasik. He's CEO of Pandora. He's been in his role for coming on two years and we're thrilled to have him on. Welcome, Alexander. Thank you very much. We always kick things off, Alexander, with a very basic question, which is just tell us about your background. I know prior to Pandora, you were with Britax. In fact, the car safety seat I use for my son. How did you get to Pandora? Tell us about all that came before. So uh, I think that the way I would start is I worked in the, with brands my entire career and, and always stayed in that track. Now, brands spanning from Pringles, which I'm sure you're familiar with, to Vicks, Procrops, to uh, always and all days panty liners, oil of Goulet, Pantene. Uh, so a lot of brands from the Procter and Gamble days. That's where I started my career. Then I moved on to Reckitt Benkiser. So you guys would be familiar with brands like Lysol, uh, Spray and Wash maybe, Woolite. Um, then we moved back to uh, Sweden. I wanted my kids to kind of see a little bit of Sweden before they leave the nest. 
then I ended up working a while for Britax, as you mentioned, childcare products, again, a branded product. And then Pandora came and knocked on my door. And uh, it was a bit of a dream come true, having always worked in an international environment with brands conceived somewhere not where I came from originally, whereas I kind of regard myself as a, you know Scandinavian, let's say. And we don't have that many big global consumer brands coming out of this part of the world, but Pandora certainly was one. And when that opportunity came, then it was quite uh, interesting. And when you look at all these brands, I mean, they're, they're obviously very different. Like Lysol is very different than Pandora, which is, a, you know, something you don't have to have. What are the commonalities when you build a brand that has such different applications to people? Like what are the similarities or what commonalities do you find? I think that the question is more interesting. What's common for brands that are successful? And there I found uh, was that you really, really get deep in your understanding of the consumer, the target audience, as we normally call it, uh, understanding their needs and wants, and then figuring out whether you have what it takes to kind of serve up something that's of interest to them. But for me, it always starts being really, really close to understanding what, what, what goes on in consumers' mind. You know, when, when they woke up, I worked for a couple of years on Head & Shoulders, for instance, phenomenal brand, even though initially I thought, how can you get excited about dandruff? is that people are super engaged because when you have dandruff you actually a lot of people then feel that they have a social distancing issue Mm -hmm. maybe relevant in in the pandemic days but because those people would say well i have a bad hair day therefore i don't want to get close to people and therefore the brand could actually provide you with a solution that is well beyond necessarily you know having a, a, a good hair look but you took away with the stigma that, you know, I may have done it, but I don't need to show it. So we've got a very, a very special guest, an important guest, somebody we've hoped to get on this show for some time. And so I will cut to the chase here and introduce him. His name, of course, is Sean Kell, Chief Executive of Blue Nile. And we are thrilled to have him join us. I think you said, Sean, you're joining us from Seattle today. Is that right? That's right, Victoria. Thanks for having me today. I'm at the Blue Nile World Headquarters just outside of Seattle. Well, so you did not come from jewelry. We always ask our guests to sort of tell us how, you know, their background and some of the key experiences prior to their current roles. So we'd love to hear the highlights of your career prior to Blue Nile. And I think first I'd say I've come from a family of jewelry lovers. My mom loved jewelry and my dad loved buying jewelry and giving jewelry as gifts. And every year it seemed, you know, there's these, we talk about these five gifting occasions every year for jewelry as gifts. And my dad, I think, tried to take that up a notch. And so there was always this amazing jewelry around my house. And so it was a big part of my life growing up. Uh, And then my wife, uh, we've been married 24 years. My wife is a um, part-time hobbyist jewelry designer. And so it's been around our house for quite some time. So that's, that's a little bit about us. I, yeah, I started as an engineer after college at IBM down in California. So I was a math and physics guy in school and did that for a couple of years and then went into sales at IBM and loved the sales and marketing side, uh, in this case of computer systems. And then went to business school and studied marketing and loved doing the marketing, loved 
kind of classical consumer facing and business to business marketing and, and went and did that for a little while after after business school. First at a consulting firm and then at Starbucks for a while back when Starbucks was a little company. I did a number of things at Starbucks, including the basically ran the website at Starbucks as well as a couple of other parts of the business. I got really my first taste of retail as well as the company was growing super fast and breaking all the rules and really just having a ton of fun there. And then went to Expedia, division of Expedia called Hotels.com. So that was my real first entry into at scale e-commerce and seeing how disruptive, I think in a really positive way, the internet and e-commerce can be to, in that case, the travel industry and how the internet and this e-commerce business model with the transparency and incredible assortment and great prices can really transform an industry and really changed how consumers thought about travel and where they travel and how easy it was and just this terrific explosion of, of that industry. And then I got recruited by a um, private equity firm to run a small business called A Place for Mom, which was and is the largest website and e-commerce marketplace that helps consumers find assisted living and memory care for their parents. So it's very similar to Expedia in that Expedia helps consumers find great hotels and great airline flights, and A Place for Mom helps consumers find great assisted living and memory care and home care for their aging parents. Left that company about three years ago and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I got a call from the folks who had taken Blue Nile Private, a bank in Boston called Bain Capital. And so they hired me to help lead that transition. And I think the idea was that while I didn't come from jewelry, I did know quite a bit about e-commerce and consumer marketing and building great teams and running international businesses. And so um, I was brought in and I've been here for two years now. It's, it's really been terrific. Well, we have a special guest that I know will be familiar to many, many people in this industry. I would say if we had a popularity contest, you might win that superlative like we all did in high school. You will know her. She's Alexis Pattis, president of Pattis Jewelry based in San Francisco. And that's where she's calling in from today. Welcome, Alexis. I think first, we just want to hear a little bit about how you got into this business. Obviously, it's a family business. So maybe it was always a foregone conclusion that you would enter it. But is that the case? Uh, quite the opposite, actually. So I'm one of four kids. I am the only one that actually did join the family business. And some days I feel like the brilliant one, other days, not so much. But for the most part, I love every single second of it. But I came into the business after spending time in a completely different industry. And I think that stemmed from the fact that when we were little, holiday break, spring break, my parents would always force us into the stores. So of course, when push came to shove, and we're looking at our own careers, it was the last thing I think any of us wanted to do. My I was working for a marketing analytics company after I finished up my MBA. I'd started there down in Westlake Village and I loved everything I was doing. I was traveling all the time, was newly engaged and getting ready to get married. And I was flying all over the place. And I think Detroit in January was the trip where I started really thinking about why am I doing this? <laughs> That'll get any California girl with thin skin. That weather gets you when you're not ready for it. Oh dear. So this was how many years ago? So that was in 2010. So back 11 years ago. And uh, during the winter time, true to form, my parents asked me when I was home for the holidays to come into the store. And I said yes, because I'm a good daughter. And I love my folks, of course. And way back when this doesn't exist anymore. But there was a line of duct tape on the floor. And on one side of the duct tape was where our seasoned diamond salespeople could be who'd gone through training and had the proper education to sell loose stones. 
And on the other side of the tape was everybody else. And up until that point, I'd always been on the other side of the tape and I'd come back for the holidays feeling like a hot shot. And I'm like, you know what? Today's the day I'm stepping over that line. Sure enough, sold my first engagement ring to a wonderful couple. It just happened to work that they'd found a mounting and a stone. So our jeweler said it that day. And he actually proposed that day in store. And this couple, I mean, you couldn't have talked about like more of a kismet situation where they were so thankful. He gets down on one knee. It's a whole thing. I'm crying. They're crying. It's hugs. And they're so grateful to me. And I'm sitting here going, I just did my job. I sold you something. Like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And they became family friends. I got invited to their wedding, her bachelorette. I get to see them from time to time with push presents and things like that. And it, that got me. That was it for me. I was sold. So after that selling of the first engagement ring, I had a long chat with my folks about what me coming into the business would look like. And that was it. Your parents, or I've known your father for a long time. They're also first generation. How did he get into the business and your mom? I love their story. So my dad was a student at Cal. In his off time, he would string puka shells and sell them on Telegraph Avenue. And he would then sell at flea markets. And thank goodness in the 70s, I guess puka shells were really hot. Elizabeth Taylor wore a set on Johnny Carson way back when. And it was quite lucrative for him as a student. He actually ended up dropping out of medical school to pursue his dream of being a jeweler, which with immigrant parents, that was not a very popular decision. So he really, I mean, his parents stopped talking to him for a while. I mean, he had met my mom. She was a vice president and the head buyer for a chain of fashion jewelry stores. It was local. It was called Bedazzled, kind of like a Claire's or the icing. And at the time, my dad would go around from location to location and buy all of the clasps that they sold there. And finally, somebody said to him, instead of having to do this drive every few days, why don't you go to our company headquarters and buy wholesale? And that is where he met my mom, Judy. Oh, and that was the 70s, I guess? Yep, so? that was the 70s. So our company was officially founded in 74. So we're about 48 years in business. I'm looking forward to that 50-year mark here coming up in a few years. The woman we have on today, I just watched Mad Money's Jim Cramer call her the turnaround artist. Had lots of great things to say where she was interviewed on his program very recently. If you don't already know who I'm talking about, you will certainly know her name. Jenna Drosos, Chief Executive Officer of Signet Jewelers. Got a real big wig today and we're really thrilled to have you. Welcome, Jenna. Thank you so much, Victoria and Rob. It's great to be with you. And so how did you wind your way? I know you held numerous roles prior to getting to Signet and you joined the board in 2012, but you've been CEO since, what is it, almost about a little over four years, correct? 2017? That's right. I came in in August. You know, it's, um, it's really interesting. When I think about my career, I think the common thread is, number one, I've always wanted to work in industries where I feel like the products or services make a difference in people's lives. And secondly, I've really particularly enjoyed transformation opportunities, opportunities to work with a very talented team like I have at Signet and transform our company and hopefully have a positive impact also on the industry. That's really what drew me to Procter & Gamble. I worked there in the beauty business. It was very small when I started. I was part of a team that built the number one beauty company in the world in the middle of a soap and diaper company. And we did that through acquisitions, through global expansion of 
our product lines. We focused on the consumer to really understand his and her needs. And then we had expert product development to bring breakthrough products to life. One of my favorite experiences was the Olay brand. When I started working on it, it was about $180 million in sales. And when I left P&G, it was two and a half billion. You know, number one brand in not only North America, but also China, fast growing in India. You know, I remember sitting on, honestly, I had traveled about three hours outside of the fifth largest city in India on dirt roads for the last hour and a half of that trip and sitting on the floor of a woman's home and talking to her about her beauty rituals. And when I understood the role that our skincare and hair care products were making in her life and the pleasure that it was bringing her and the aspect of braiding her hair and oiling her hair with her daughter and her sister every week, I could see that beauty products were making a difference. They were giving her confidence and, you know, were a very important part of her life. And so being able to transform our cost structure and our packaging to make those benefits accessible in a market like that was very fulfilling. When you were younger, did you have any, were you a big jewelry fan? Did you have memories of some of the big Signet brands that you now oversee like Kay and Zales? My mother loved jewelry. And so I would always play in her jewelry box. I thought it was so much fun. And she did not have pierced ears. She had clip-on earrings so that made it really easy as a kid to get to try on all the different things that she had. I did not grow up in a family that was very well off. I mean, we we were a middle-class family. We drove on family vacations and, and it was exciting when we got to stay at the Holiday Inn because they you know, had a pool, that kind of thing. So it wasn't as though she had a lot of jewelry, but she cared for it. You know, She thought it was very special and she had stories for every piece of her jewelry. And that was always very meaningful to me. And so on my 18th birthday, my parents bought me my first really nice piece of jewelry, which was a diamond cocktail ring from Freed in Atlanta. It was just beautiful. It's something that I cherish to this day because, you know, it wasn't wasn't easy for them to do things like that. And then when my mother passed a few years ago now, she left to my daughter her own diamond cocktail ring. So it's it is something that has been important in our family. Well, let's get to our guest. So I have a little a little ramp up here to introduce him. Many, many of you listening will know of him. And I want to be a little punny or a little play on his name. You might get it. He's a revered jewelry maker, master goldsmith, master jeweler who has taught many, many people in our industry how to make jewelry, how to make beautiful jewelry. He is a past president of the American Jewelry Design Council, a founder of the Contemporary Design Group, award-winning author, and not to mention the founder of the Revere Jewelry Making Academy in San Francisco, now retired, Alan Revere. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Thank you very much, Victoria and, and Rob. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Well, let's dig in. We always start with our guests by asking about their backgrounds. So we know you trained in Germany and then went on to become this revered teacher in the industry. But tell us about how you got to jewelry in the first place. Well, I grew up in, in Great Neck, New York, and studied like all kids do. and did okay in school and went to college at the University of Virginia, where I took an art class. A lot of my family are artists, kind of part-time or semi-professional artists, and I liked it. So after Virginia, I was driving a taxi in Manhattan for the summer, getting ready for law school at Georgetown, and Woodstock came along. 
and I decided I didn't really want to go to law school anymore. I wanted to be an artist. So I took off in a Volkswagen bus for a year and landed in Mexico at the Instituto Allende. And I spent the next two years getting the basics of working in silver. I have a degree in sculpture from there. And from there, I just wanted more. So I went to Germany, spent two years there, really got a heavy dose. I worked 45 hours a week, plus every vacation and weekends for my teachers. I just absorbed it all and came back to the United States to move to San Francisco at that point in 1974 and, and started a whole new life. What a journey. Already that's like a lifetime's worth of experiences, it sounds like. I'm curious too about Mexico. You kind of mentioned it. Was that Taxco or somewhere in the silver? No, that's a good guess though. No, it's a, it was in San Miguel de Allende, which is a beautiful colonial village, now a city at 7,400 feet that had a, a, a wonderful arts and crafts school called the Instituto Allende. It was like a working vacation. I worked real hard, but I played real hard. It was so much fun and learned Spanish. I learned to weave, I learned to throw clay and work in wood, ceramics, some carving of stone, and gravitated right away toward jewelry. And it just clicked. It was like metal runs through my veins. I just, as soon as I picked up a piece of silver, it really was a transformation, I would say. Actually, my life just took a huge left turn away from academics and into the arts. So Germany, you come back, you head to San Francisco, and what do you do when you get there? First thing I did was get a job. My first job as a bench jeweler, lived in Oakland, worked in Oakland at a trade shop that did a lot of repairs. So it filled out a whole other aspect of my skill set. I studied art in Mexico, metal in Germany, and now repair and how to resize rings and custom orders. So I spent a year doing that. It was really fun. I just had a blast. I could have done it forever. I, I just love working with my hands. And then, uh, then I had an opportunity to teach a small class at the California College of Arts and Crafts, and that led to more classes in my own studio, and then a small a school in my in my home, and then San Francisco in 1979 into the jewelry building. There were 150 jewelry businesses in the building, and uh, opened up one room Revere Academy of Jewelry Arts. Uh, I remember not thinking I would be able to pay the rent of $400 a month. Was it something that kind of caught on right away? Yes, it caught on right away. When I got back from Germany in 74, there were a lot of jewelers. There were a lot of freelance custom jewelers kind of coming up through the system. The market was really healthy for custom jewelry and artistic jewelry. And so there were a lot of people who wanted to learn what I had learned. And I wanted to show them. I had private students. I had students at CCAC. I started traveling, opened the school, started hiring people. And it just was straight ahead. I mean, over the years, I think we expanded physically in the building eight times. At some point, Otto Fry, the jewelry supplier, moved next to us, and it was like a perfect team because they could supply our students, and we could provide a lot for them. And we had a lot of really strong years. We had up to 450 students a year. We sometimes had as many as 100 classes, mostly three-day and a few five-day classes. And then we had a master symposium uh, every April for the past 20 years and invited international people from all over to teach their specialty. A lot of very prominent people went through there. So I look back and it was some sort of miracle. It just all came together. I, I had a team that saw my vision and, and supported it. And it takes my breath away looking back, honestly. Okay, well, thanks. I hope you enjoyed all those different stories and different points of view and learning about all those different people. And uh, we hope to be back with our regular schedule podcast very soon. By the way, if anyone's interested in my origin story, my grandfather was a diamond dealer. 
many years ago, and I think he died in uh, 1982, I believe. And when I got out of college, I was looking for a writing job, and I'd written something for the school newspaper and had a bunch of clips, and I went to Boston, and I worked for some local newspapers, and I saw an ad for Martin Rappaport, and he said he was looking for a writer for a Diamond Industry newsletter. And of course, my first thought was like, well, I don't want to do this. It's kind of going backwards in my life. And I kind of use those, if any of you have read my first book, uh, the main character kind of has a very similar thought process when she uh, goes to work for her father. And I remember when I was writing the thank you note, and you know, we used to like type out the thank you notes back in the day before you had computers. Uh, my father said, you know, tell him that you want to make a mazel and bracha on this. You know, he thought that would help. So I, I put that in the thank you note. And uh, maybe it did help. I don't know. So then I worked for Martin Rappaport and then for a while for National Jeweler. And then for the last, I think it's been 24 years at JCK, which is uh, quite amazing. I think in probably November, it'll be about 30 years total I've been doing this. And it's been uh, interesting. It's been fascinating. I like the business. I like the people. I met my wife in the industry, so I will always be grateful for that. And uh, I'm happy to uh, be here. And it's uh, it's always interesting. And it's, you know, what, one of the things I like about this industry is that you're always learning about things. There's so many different angles, the political angle. There's, you know, right now I'm learning about association governance. I'm learning about international politics. You, you learn about Hollywood, about glamour, about, you know, it gives you a very interesting sliver on how the world works. And for a journalist, there's no better feeling than to be constantly learning. I hope you enjoyed all those great stories, and I hope you found them insightful and interesting. I, I certainly learned a lot re-listening to them, and it's fascinating all the paths people take. And, you know, life is, is so interesting, and just it rarely works out the way you planned it. And uh, that's it. We hope to have Victoria back soon. We thank you for listening and uh, wish you all the best. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you'll join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. Kay.